From Leading Age in Washington, D.C., this is Aging Unmasked. I'm your host, Charlie Visconage. On every episode of Aging Unmasked, we normalize, humanize, and unmask taboos in aging. On today's episode, Embracing LGBT Older Adults, Part 2. If you haven't heard Part 1 yet, go back and listen to it first. We had so many positive responses to interviews for this episode that we had to split it up into two parts. To recap from Part 1, LGBT older adults face discrimination based on their sexual orientation and gender identity, often being forced back into the closet when seeking healthcare or long-term services and supports. For part two, we're speaking with people who are doing everything they can to make the lives of LGBT older adults better. CEOs, staff of communities, and a journalist. Inclusion is now more important than ever due to a current administration that seems to support slowing down the progress of the LGBT movement. Our first guest is Dr. Tim Johnston, the Director of National Projects at SAGE, an organization committed to advocacy and services for LGBT seniors. I caught up with Dr. Johnston at his office over the phone. My name is Tim Johnston. I am the Director of National Projects for SAGE. And in that capacity, I do a number of things. I oversee some of our large national partnerships with organizations such as the Alzheimer's Association. I manage the day-to-day operations and the team working on our National Resource Center for LGBT Aging, which is a federally funded national resource center that we administer. And I spend most of my time overseeing the management of our SAGE Care program. Uh, The SAGE Care program is our training and credentialing wing, where we work with providers across the aging spectrum to make sure that they have the tools and supplies that they need to work with LGBT older adults. So for organizations who are interested in the SAGE Care credential, the first step would be to visit our website, sageusa.care. There you can find more information about the different levels of credential that we offer. Our introductory credential is the bronze credential, and to earn that level, you need to train 25% of your staff on at least one hour of LGBT cultural competency training. That then goes up through several more levels to arrive at platinum, where you've trained 80% of your staff on one hour of training, and your senior leadership have also gone through a half-day intensive training. So the intention is to create a robust training program that folks return to annually. Um, In your second year, we'll give you what we call a deeper dive training, where you get into more in-depth information. Organizations who do the credentialing program are then added to the SageCare website, where potential customers or interested parties can search to find credentialed organizations in their areas. And we've heard anecdotally from a number of places and a number of people that seeing the credential logo on a brochure or in the window of an organization's front waiting room has really communicated to them that they're working with a provider who is committed to LGBT older adults. So our top credential is the platinum credential. And at this level, we ask your organization to do two things. One is we ask that 80% of your senior leadership attend a half-day training session. These are conducted in person by Sage Care certified trainers all across the country, and it's an opportunity to do a real deep dive into basic cultural competency, the unique needs of LGBT older adults, and it's intended to give senior leadership the skills they need to kind of shepherd this culture change through the organization. 
The second thing we ask folks to do is to commit to training 80% of the rest of their staff. So this is everybody from somebody working in the kitchen all the way to your accounting department. That training can be in person. It can also be done via a live webinar facilitated by one of our trainers, or folks can log online and do one of our one-hour interactive trainings that we have available on demand. In terms of our recent advocacy efforts, I'll focus on three of the many things that we're working on. One is that SAGE for a long time has been advocating for non-discrimination legislation in counties or localities in which those protections are not in place. We're also doing a lot of work on housing. We are helping provide technical assistance to local organizers and organizations who are trying to build housing for LGBT older adults. And we're also making sure that LGBT elders across the country have access to the services that they need to age in place, if that's what they choose to do. Finally, and perhaps the most timely, is our new Care Can't Wait campaign. So this campaign is a reaction against recent attempts to use religious belief or deeply held religious convictions to deny services to LGBT older adults. Um, listeners might have heard of the Masterpiece Cake Shop Supreme Court decision that recently kind of kicked this decision further down the line. But our concern is that folks can use the idea of a religious exemption to deny providing important services to LGBT elders. This is particularly concerning because over half of long-term care providers across the country are religiously identified. People who are interested in this campaign can go to sageusa.org backslash care can't wait to sign a pledge and let us know if you're a provider that you pledge to provide equal services to LGBT older adults. We have a couple of really exciting opportunities for people who are interested in LGBT aging to get involved with us and take action. One thing that I'm really looking forward to is a program that we have called Sage Table. Uh, Sage Table is a program that links people locally. It links hosts and people who are interested in attending a Sage Table event. And then what folks do is they come together and have dinner together. It's an opportunity to meet people in your neighborhood who you might not know before and get people engaged in intergenerational dialogue. We're also excited about a new project, which is our LGBT elder hotline. So this phone number is 888-234-SAGE or 888-234-7243. Monday through Friday, it's staffed from 4 p.m. to midnight and Saturdays from noon until 5 p.m. And the hotline is staffed by trained volunteers. So you could call this to get information about local services. You could call it to get connected with a provider. But the most important function that it serves is to provide a place for LGBT older adults who might be isolated to call and hear a friendly voice and speak with someone who they know is going to be affirming, check in about their day, and feel more connected to the community. So those are two important projects that I wanted to highlight, but you can always go to sageusa.org, and then on the top right-hand portion of the screen, click on Get Involved to learn about the different projects that we're running across the country. And for folks who are engaged in training or interested in learning how your organization could partner with SAGE to bring training to your staff, you can go to sageusa.care to learn more about that program. 
So the future that I would like to see for LGBT older adults is one in which they can really thrive. And for some LGBT older adults, this means being treated with the same respect and receiving the same services as everybody else, and not drawing too much attention to the fact that they are LGBT. So for those folks, I want to create a world where their identity isn't an issue, and in fact, they're able to access the services that they need in exactly the same way as everyone else. For other LGBT older adults, they're very proud of their identity, and they want the uniqueness of their experience to be affirmed and their perspective to be validated. So for those folks, I want to see a world in which being an LGBT older adult is interesting, it's fascinating, and a source of strength and resilience for them and their communities. You can learn more about SAGE at sageusa.org. Our next guests all work for the Aldersgate Group, a nonprofit continuing care retirement community in Charlotte, North Carolina. I asked Suzanne Pugh, Aldersgate CEO, to put me in touch with a staff member who works with LGBT inclusion there. She was nice enough to put me in touch with three of them. I spoke with them over the phone at their office. So my name is Veronica Caldern, and I am Aldersgate Chief Diversity and Inclusion Officer. My name is Aaron Barbie, and I am the Director of Mission Advancement. My name is Brooke Shelley. I am the Director of Marketing and Brand Strategy. Aldersgate is a 231-acre continuing care retirement center that offers the full continuum of care beginning with independent living all the way through to hospice. We celebrate 70 years of business this year. So um, how we foster inclusion is um, we started with enhancing and building our internal, um, our internal culture and wanting to become a place where everyone is valued and respected for who they are. And that is ultimately also part of our mission. And the way, and what does that look like is um, we're, we're doing it in different, in different ways. We're doing it through education, through policy and structural changes to building partnerships with local and national LGBTQ organizations, Aaron's going to talk about that, and then having a strong marketing strategy, and Brooks is going to touch on that. So when talking about education, what that looks like is we're providing LGBTQ cultural competence training to all of our staff and residents. Part of that educational programming came from a partnership we built with SAGE and SAGE Care. We partner with SAGE uh, National, not just to acquire um, their credentials, but also to truly build an inclusive community for LGBTQ um, individuals that have been neglected from places like ours for many years. And um, we made the SAGE training, including um, other educational programming around neutral language mandatory for all of our staff. As of May of this year, we became platinum certified with SAGE, and our work has not stopped there. When I talked about um, gender neutral language, we want to make sure that not just verbally, but written, that all of our documents that are received by our patients and by our residents have also things like partner, spouse, parent, partner, and in doing so, we are creating a culture of inclusion internally so then it's easier for those who are coming to our community to be themselves. 
We also do an education around unconscious bias, and this workshop is um, it's available for all of our staff, but also for all of our residents. And while we look in, into that, into the unconscious bias, is how can we help people pause and stop making assumptions or um, judgment about others who are coming to our who are coming to our um, to our organization or those in the communities we serve. Um, policies and structural changes. One of the things um, that the, as we established as an organization um, to be inclusive was making sure that all of our policies reflected two different wordings. One of them was sexual orientation and the other one is gender identity. So all of our non-discrimination policies um, for patients, for staff, or visitation policies have those two included. Structural changes, um, we are currently working on having two gender neutral, neutral bathrooms in each of our common areas. Um, we have about three large common areas, so that means that in our, in our buildings there will be a total of six gender neutral bathrooms. We've had supporters from our staff, but we also have um, those in our staff that have been here almost the 70 years that this organization um, has been around and who were not welcoming to the change. And the same thing with residents. We have gotten a lot of pushback from residents, but also providing trainings and educational sessions like these have allowed us to also learn a lot more about our residents and our residents are opening up to us and they're letting us know, hey, my son, my daughter is gay or um, my my granddaughter is transgender, and, and these are conversations that we would have never had two, three years ago with our residents. So the more we're allowing this to happen at Aldersgate, the more we're making it available to them, the more they're opening up. And yes, we still do have those who will push back and that are not fully on board, but they see it happening, and when the messaging is very clear, from our CEO as part of this being part of our journey, um, it, it becomes clear today to them that they're that we're doing it. So becoming a um, an inclusive CCRC, it's not a policy per se. It's more of a strategy and a journey. And our journey truly started a couple years ago when our CEO approached the board and and basically said exactly what you just said in order for us to, to stay relevant another 70 years, we can't stay and be the same. The board can't look the same. And for the past two years, um, the board has truly changed. Um, we have, our board is very diverse. We currently have, and it, it's diversity comes in age, sexual orientation, gender identity, um, gender, um, religion, and, um, and that is what drives a lot of this work. And many of them are very passionate about the work of diversity and inclusion. There was a diversity and inclusion committee built within the board that were actually, um, they were the ones who were in charge of um, building, um, building this job for me. So um, they, are, they had the idea of bringing somebody on board to lead this work for the organization. So the outreach that Aldersgate has been doing to the LGBT communities has been extremely strategic. Once we really understood internally 
what we um, could offer, where we were with our training, where we were with our residents and their viewpoints. We wanted to make sure that we were reaching out to organizations that understood that we were on a journey. Um, working with LGBT communities, you don't want to get an overexcited message that we are extremely welcoming right now. We are we're working towards that. And so we wanted to partner with organizations that could join that journey with us, not just uh, know about what's happening at Aldersgate. So more specifically, in a strategic way, we would partner with organizations like the LGBT Chamber of Commerce and talk to them about elder issues with LGBT elders in general. And recently we did a great event uh, where we showcased at the um, LGBT Chamber Business Expo. And that was completely unheard of to have a senior living community to do a presentation about LGBT elders and LGBT elder rights and senior living at a business expo. And we were able to raise awareness about our inclusiveness in that setting. We also partner with organizations to bring more organizations to our campus. So, for example, we did our very first event geared towards the transgender community um, with an organization by the name of Freedom Center for Social Justice. And in partnering with them, we did a screening of the movie Miss Major, which was focused around um, an, a transgender elder woman who has been fighting for transgender rights for 40 plus years. And with that screening, we welcomed the community to come to our campus and be with our residents and staff and have an interactive conversation about transgender rights. It was really powerful and uh, one of the first times we've had a transgender-focused event on our campus. And um, it created impact. And, and back to Veronica's point, it's showing our residents and our staff that we, we really are on this journey and we're doing that externally and internally and, and then melding the two as often as we can. We also um, are very excited about marching in the Pride Parade this year. Um, that is new for Aldersgate and we're partnering with Charlotte Pride in making that happen and having a float or something along those lines in the parade to really show the community that we're committed to our word of inclusiveness and that we're there. And again, you don't see senior living communities marching in pride parades. Um, so we're very excited about the strategic moves we're making in the community. And uh, we welcome their feedback as well. And we want them to let us know what their experience was like at Aldersgate and if they felt welcomed, if they didn't feel welcome, because having that open dialogue allows us to continue to do the training and education that is needed internally to be successful. The future of LGBTQ aging is actually as diverse as it gets. LGBTQ people come in all shapes, colors, sizes, and religions, just like any other part of the population. So we strive to make sure that everyone is included and welcome and also that their equity is viewed as such. So we're showing the future of what we expect to have here versus what it actually is right now. So while we may feature people that look different than what is currently here, that is exactly where we're headed. Um, it is very intentional. It is very transparent. We make um, everyone feel welcome and make sure that everyone's equity is viewed as such. We also do the same thing with our staff. Some of our best marketing is our staff. And staff training that Veronica has done has been very helpful. And for myself, when I came in, um, the fact that Aldersgate actually offers same-sex partner benefits is a huge deal. 
that most CCRCs don't offer. And for an organization to actually offer that to their staff while also doing the external piece of marketing and advertising to that community, as well as doing the internal communications and training with our current residents, is a huge, huge impact. So for those um, organizations are looking to um, into this work or looking to um, start building an inclusive community, um, just wanting to let them know that it takes a lot of intentionality and getting out of the comfort zone. Um, these conversations are uncomfortable. They're uncomfortable to be had with our residents. Um, they are uncomfortable to be had sometimes with our, with our staff. But these are conversations that must happen if you're truly wanting to build an inclusive community. Um, it doesn't happen overnight. Um, it's, um, sometimes it feels like crawling, sometimes it feels like baby steps. But every step of the way, you are actually able to see the difference, whether it's from the community feeling more welcome, our own residents opening up to us, or staff opening up to us about their struggles. Um, so it's creating, creating that sense of belonging for everyone just continues to open doors. You can learn more about Aldersgate at aldersgateccrc.com. Our next guest is Tara Barampur, a reporter at the Washington Post. Tara recently wrote about the efforts of local nonprofit communities to try and attract more LGBT residents. Tara stopped by our office to share her findings. I am Tara Barampour and I am a staff writer for the Washington Post and I cover aging, generations, and demography, which is pretty broad. So it can be anything from Alzheimer's disease to why millennials do the things that they do to um, the census and the, the plans for the 2020 census, and in this case to um, lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender people looking for places to live as they age. Five years ago, I had written a similar story about the struggles that LGD, LGBT people had in finding places to live uh, as they retired. And there are a lot of underlying issues and problems that they face. For example, um, a lot of them had been part of the Stonewall generation, which had fought in the mid to late 20th century for equal rights and non-discrimination. And so they, they were out and they you know didn't ever think that they would have to go back in the closet, but they were finding that looking around, they weren't seeing any places that looked gay friendly. And in fact, some of them were reporting caretakers coming to their house and saying things like, I'm going to drive the demons out of you because they saw you know, that the person had a same-sex partner or had pictures on the wall indicating you know, that, that they were not straight. So that was a big concern. And there were actually studies done over the last few years showing that three-quarters of LGBT people did not feel like they could be out with the staff of a senior facility and also staff themselves when they were interviewed didn't feel like it would be safe for LGBT people to be out in facilities as well. A high proportion of them thought so too. So it was a real problem and is. Um, but what's interesting is that when I wrote about this five years ago in the Washington DC area, people were saying that there really was nowhere 
And there was one little place that was working to raise money to open that would just be, you know, for LGBT people, but it was going to house about eight people. So it wasn't really going to be a big problem solver overall, although it was a good step. And there were other facilities around the country that were starting to open that were LGBT-specific places. Um, but in terms of the sort of general population retirement communities being open to it, it was sort of a hard struggle because if you look at polls done in the, the last few years, you will see that different generations have a, a higher or lower tolerance level for LGBT people basically based on their age. And so while uh, millennials, 71% of them are very open to it, and then Gen X was, I think, 60-something percent, and baby boomers were 50%, and the silent generation was 47%. And that's the, those older people are the ones who are going to be their peers in the retirement community. So their fears are not, are not without grounds. I mean, these places are important for everybody, but a lot of LGBT people are even more in need of them than a lot of people in the general population might be for several reasons. One is that they tend to have fewer children, so they don't have sort of the family caregiver built in that a lot of people have. Um, a lot of them, their social structures were decimated in the 1980s and 90s during the AIDS epidemic, and so those people that they would have grown old with are not there. Um, they tend to have more health problems, um, cardiovascular problems, obesity among lesbian women, HIV positive status among, among uh, men. There tends to be more social isolation because, especially in the age that they were coming of age and, and, and being adults, there was just less support, there was less acceptance, and, so, and also they earn less overall. And so for all of those reasons, they are in a more precarious position than people in the general population might be. And if they don't have money, they are facing public assistance caregivers who may or may not be trained, may or may not be sensitive, and so they're more vulnerable than the general population would be. DC, the city, is very gay-friendly and, and has been for decades. And I think there is less of an issue right in the center of the city. There is actually a facility called the Residences at Thomas Circle that has been LGBT friendly for a while and is very open and, and welcoming. I think the problem comes when you look at the broader metropolitan area where a lot of these places are located because there's more land and, and it's you know there's just a lot, a lot of them. Um, they are drawing from suburban and even sort of exurban rural areas, and so it's it's just a more sort of an area that's maybe more reflective of the nation as a whole, and not so much just sort of a coastal elite population. So that could be a reason. Also, I think that Washington culturally is more conservative than places like New York City or California or Seattle where there has traditionally been just a lot more acceptance that came a lot earlier. And I think for, for Washington culturally, even though there have been these very strong enclaves in the city itself, I think as, as a, a sociological kind of cultural, you know, kind of place where you think, well, do people go to Washington, D.C. to let it all fly out? And I think the answer would be no. When I 
interviewed people earlier for the earlier article about why wouldn't a facility just go out and say, hey, yeah, we're welcome to LGBT people. I think the answer is that they might alienate a lot of other people. And one person said, yeah, we might get 10 or 12 you know, additional residents, but we might, you know, close it off to a, a larger world of potential people. And so I think they have been careful about how to do that. But at the same time, I think a lot of them do want to do that. And so some of the more subtle ways that they can advertise is they can have a brochure that has a man, two men on it or two women on it. Uh, they can use language in that brochure that says spouse rather than husband or wife. They can advertise in gay publications. And when they do intake of people coming in, there's certain language and, and words that they can use that are something you might not even think of if you weren't already aware of it. But instead of saying something like, we're having a family day, you might say, put a sign up saying, all families welcome. Or instead of saying, tell me about your family, you might say, tell me about the important people in your life. You would also listen to their concerns. You know, if they say, well, I'm not sure I'm comfortable being out here, instead of just saying, oh, no, 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 it's fine. You'll, you'll be fine. Everyone would love you. You know, you would actually take their concerns seriously and say, yes, I can understand why you might feel that way, but please be assured that we're very welcoming. And really just address it head on rather than sort of brushing it off. Also, listening to the way that they describe themselves and the language that they use, because there are many different terms to describe LGBT people, and some of them use different terms than others, and it sort of depends on where you're from and how old you are, and somebody might be very comfortable calling himself or herself queer, and another person might take offense at that. So the idea is to listen to their language and reflect it. The facility that I focused on in the Washington, D.C. area which is Asbury Methodist Village, is the first one in this metropolitan region to receive this SAGE certification. So I wasn't able to see them before and after, but I did call a couple of other facilities that have had the certification for a while and listened to what they said about you know, the difference that it's made. And again, it's subtle, but, but I think it's, it's not unimportant to think about the fact that they feel that the conversations that they have are much freer and more easy and comfortable now. The new Jewish home in New York City said that since they got the certification, their residents' participation in the Pride March doubled. Now again, it was a small number to begin with, but just the fact that more people are coming I think was indicative. Um, there are now um, at Green Hill in New Jersey, they have put rainbow flags on the doors and on the ID badges of staff members. They, I think, unfurled a flag for the first time this month. So I think there are just, the, the certification, I think, sort of gave the facilities and the people living in them maybe sort of the impetus to be more open and to feel more comfortable talking about these things openly. I think when you look at those numbers of the different generations and how differently they approach their their acceptance of LGBT people, that the future has just got to go in one direction of more acceptance. I mean, if, if millennials are nine or are seventy one percent accepting right now, then I think going forward, by the time they you know reach retirement age, it's going to not be a question. It's not going to not it's not going to be an issue. So. In terms of D.C., I think D.C. will go the way the country goes. And I think once one facility 
gets this certification and people see that the sky doesn't fall, probably other facilities will follow. You can read more of Tara's writing at the Washington Post. We've linked to her article in the show notes. Our final guest today is Vassar Bird, the CEO of Rose Villa Retirement Community in Portland, Oregon. Vassar has worked tirelessly to make sure LGBT elders are included in their community. I caught up with Vassar over the phone at her office in Portland. Hi, Vassar Bird. I am the CEO at Rose Villa Senior Living in Portland, Oregon. And I've been here, yes, I've been here for um, almost 12 years. And we are a lifeline community, also known as a continuing care retirement community, not for profit. Um, and we've been here since 1960. Rose Villa is a very inclusive and open uh, community, which was started by some visionaries way back in 1960, uh, initially from the Methodist Church with some outreach to the Baptist Church. Um, I think these people just knew each other in the local neighborhood, and they thought it was important to create a community where they would have the opportunity to retire together. And um, there was no more formal church connection, and there's, there's really not any sort of um, religious uh, connection now, although we do typically have quite a bit of Methodist and Baptist uh, residents here. Um, and so um, we really have attracted a very specific type of residents because we are an open community, not in a big building. Uh, we're, we have 22 acres and very oriented to the outside. So you open your door to your cottage and you're outdoors. You're not in a hallway, by and large. And so lots of gardeners, lots of pet owners, people who like to be outside. It's, uh, it's Portland, Oregon, so people are used to getting wet when they go get their mail, and that really doesn't change when you move to Rosilla. So our, our core values here are really about interdependence. So it's important to have good neighbors, but you don't want anybody in your business. So it's a great combination of strength and support and respect and also community and collaboration. Um, and our mission really, as a, from a staff perspective, is to help elders live the life of their own choosing. So our goal is to really support people make decisions that they want to enrich their own lives not to run it for them. And our, you know, we have a high value on autonomy, quirkiness. Um, we like folks to just be who they are, and the more we are just supporting quietly from below, the better. So I, I'll, I will start to talk about Rose Villa's LGBT um, journey with just a small story. It's sort of like my own awakening. Um, you know, uh, Portland is a very diverse place in lots of ways um, and very accepting and unusual. Um, I have a habit of meeting with residents before they move in because I want them to know who I am and where to find me. Um, and it's important. I need to know who's going to be living here, who I'm, who I'm working with. And I met with uh, two women who moved in, and I want to say it was probably 2008, um, and I met and I asked them, uh, so why did you choose Roseville? You've got a lot of options. Just curious, you know, why you found the residents here. And they looked at me and said, well, we really didn't. We chose a different community um, south in a small town south of Portland. Uh, we really like a more rural lifestyle. And we had put in our money and they'd gotten an apartment for us. And we were having lunch with the director of marketing. And she leaned over and told us, you know, when you move in, it'd be better if you were sisters or roommates. 
And when they told me that story, I just started laughing because I thought, sure, somebody's going to tell an 80-year-old woman to get back in the closet. You got you just, you're just yanking my chain, right? And she looked at me and said, no, that was for real. And they decided they couldn't possibly live in that community, and they started looking again. So my takeaway from that, and I went directly to uh, a senior management meeting where I said, this is, this is the fact that we encourage and support uh, gay and lesbian resident members here is not enough. We have to really go out and broadcast that message in a very clear, loud voice because um, there's a lot of repression still out there. And it's horrifying to think that anyone would tell someone who is tough and strong enough to make it to 80-something that they can't be who they are. So we, we were very, we, we researched ways to get our message out locally and then had a serendipity um, experience where I was interviewed for um, an OPB spot or NPR spot where I talked about it. It was a short, short um, thing that got broadcast all over the country, I found out later. And I had an extraordinary experience after that where we had um, a woman who is a delivery driver for one of the food uh, providers that we have here, came in early in the morning, stopped by my office and said, I heard that spot. I just want to tell you now I know or I can retire when I'm older. Thank you so much. I had, a, I had a, uh, one of our residents who was a retired military. If you talk about stereotypes, you know, I would never, ever, ever have thought that he would care anything about this issue. He came and talked to me almost crying and said he was the president of PFLAG um, because he has uh, sons who are gay in California, and he was so proud to be part of a community that was going to stand up and make the world a safer place for his children. So the reach of that message was profound, and it just provided a very positive um, circle of reinforcement to continue to be out there and talk and open doors, um, you know, just be more part of a community than just simply a passive, well, sure, of course it's okay to come here. I don't think that's a given. I think you have to be really clear. For Pride this year, we had transportation to the Pride Parade, um, and then I, you know, we, we let everyone know any other cool things going on. So I'm a dragon boat paddler, and my club, Wasabi, had, was part of a Pride water parade. So um, we dressed up and had a really fun time, so I invited residents to see that. Uh, we do um, show a lot of LGBTQ movies and documentaries, particularly during Pride Month, and then have group discussions afterwards. Uh, last year, we did a kind of a detailed handout about the history of Pride Month, and we do celebrate National Coming Out Day in October. Um, there's lots of events in Portland, and we just make sure that they're really well publicized. Um, the, the movie series was fairly uh, impactful. We had some newer residents who don't have any real connections to the community, to LGBTQ community. And they saw a couple of those movies and were really, they just, they were astounded that there was a whole nother reality and how life is lived that they hadn't been part of. And they were very grateful that not only could they see the movie, but then people hung out and talked about it afterwards. I think we have a fairly aware community. And I, and I, I, I don't want to uh, paint the picture that, you know, everything is perfect. So for sure, particularly um, our first drag show, uh, the publicity for that, I had some, some uh, residents here who were not supportive of it and um, had never been to a drag show, um, had a lot of misconceptions of what that meant. And so um, I also am very pleased that we have a community where they would talk to me about it and not just be upset on their own. You know, they would come forward and say, hey, what's going on here? What does this mean? 
And so we had some really great conversations. I have several residents who still don't really love the idea, um, but I think that they understand that their religious feelings or their 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 the feelings that their their beliefs that they've grown up with that they are that they are happy with don't always inform how they relate to the actual people, their actual neighbors, whom they love and admire quite a bit. That's a disconnect that I've seen a bunch where people say, well, how can you, residents who are not supportive, how can you support something like a drag show? And I, in their heads, I think they think, think we're going to have sex on stage or something. I don't know. It's horrifying. <laughs> so for me to explain, it's like a musical. <laughs> it's just really fun with great costumes. Very big audience interaction. Come check it out if you want to. So first take the, you know, the, the touch of the devil out of that. <laughs> but, uh, but then also just to talk it through, like, well, so these neighbors, I know that you um, bargain with them. So how do you reconcile that with your, with and not in an accusatory way. It's not my business to tell people what to think. But helping them to understand it's none of our business to tell people what to think. We're really here just to support each other in community. And I feel that message, because it's lived every day on the ground, that outweighs anything else at Rose Villa. And if it didn't, you really wouldn't be here. I think, I think that the bummer is that um, LGBT rights for older adults has a double whammy. It's prejudice against LGBTQ and prejudice against older people. I think the prism of ageism is as strong a prison as we can get and that people feel that older folks are a certain way and it's all you can do to open up their brains about it. So I think that's difficult. Um, I think legally, because uh, we can't legally um, segregate out, oh, these rights are only for younger people. I think legally that uh, the rights for older LGBTQ will continue to expand and be and look like human rights for everyone. Um, but I feel that that socially, as with everything to do with aging, you have to constantly bust the stereotype of what it is to be older and to say it's, it's your strong, smart, um, daring, you've made it to this age, so get back, Jack, and let me be who I am and stop putting me in a box. And I think the box is just smaller and more deadly if you are of color or LGBTQ or have anything else that people can tag you with. It's up to every single person, I think. I mean, you have such an impact as an individual. Every single person to keep destroying the box. You can learn more about Vassar and Rose Villa at rosevilla.org. And that's all the time we have for Aging Unmasked. Special thanks to Kevin Bradley, Amanda Marr, Dr. Tim Johnston, everyone at Aldersgate, Tara Barampur, and Vassar Bird. You can learn more about all of our guests in our show notes. Our music is by Matt Jaconis, and you can hear more of his work at soundcloud.com slash shiningseconds. Subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher, and please give us a rating if you liked what you heard. See you next time on Aging Unmasked.